Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today for our episode, you'll be listening to myself, Ryan Anthony Hernandez, host of the Truth the Hills podcast, team up with the host from the Unbroken podcast, talking about the truths on the darkness of sex trafficking. And she really enlightened me in this conversation on how sex trafficking isn't something only done in third world countries. It's not only done by the rich and famous, but it is done sometimes in our own neighborhoods. And so it is a huge reality check for me and maybe for some of the listeners that there needs to be an awareness of the dangers that lie in our own our own towns, our own cities, our own states. So uh, without um, saying too much about the episode, I will be giving a, again, a warning that some of the themes in this interview will be disturbing as we do dive deeply into sex trafficking and we really break it down and the hosts of the Unbroken podcast uh, you can check her episodes as well, and she doesn't sugarcoat her words. She says things as they need to be said, and that's because there needs to be an awareness. And I really am thankful for the way that she approached this. Uh, she approaches this from her own experience, you know, very sad, but also from her desire, her her goal is to keep people safe. And that's that's what we want. We want to keep people safe. We want people to be aware of the dangers that are around. And I will end off with this, that again, a, a lot of the themes in, in this episode can be disturbing. So if you have children around, um, it's up to you if you want them to hear this episode, but like I said, it will be diving deep into the world of sex trafficking. Hello listeners, my name is Casey, host of the Cult Vault podcast, a long-format interview-based show that focuses on cults, high-demand groups, captive organisations and more. Each week, I interview a different cult survivor who brings a story of coercion and exploitation along with their own fight for freedom. With nearly 200 survivor interviews from all over the world, you can also find deep dives into infamous cults interviews with leading experts in the field, and understand more about how cults exist all around us, and none of us are safe. Each month, I feature a different author on the show who has penned a compelling memoir about their cult experiences, 
which we discuss at length on the show, with copies of their books available to listeners. You will never be short of insightful and moving content here at the Cult Vault Podcast, available on all major platforms. Welcome back. You are listening to the Truth That Heals podcast. I am your host, Ryan Anthony Hernandez. And today we are joined with the host of the Unbroken podcast, Kelly. Kelly, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. How are you today? I am doing well. And it's a pleasure to finally having you on the show after months of trying to get our schedules to work. I know, it seems so hard when you both have a podcast to kind of match each other's schedules up. And, and I, I work night shift and I, I know that you're up all night, and yeah. then, but I'm at work. So it's it's been hard. But hey, we were able to finally uh, set a date. So perfect. Um, your podcast is called The Unbroken Podcast. Can you kind of share a little bit about what your podcast is about and and uh, what it means to you. Um, so I essentially started it sharing my story about being trafficked by my parents. And now it's kind of evolving into a safe space for survivors of all sorts of trauma you were on to share their stories. And I try to do as much awareness and get the truth of what sex trafficking is out there because I feel like a lot of people have just this vision of the glamorized Hollywood version of trafficking, and they don't realize exactly what it is, that it could be anyone, that it's a lot closer to home than it is. So um, I, like I said, I started by sharing my story. Now I talk about current events and just spreading awareness and different things like that and complaining about a lot of conspiracy theories that really drive me crazy. <laughs> I've been listening to uh to various episodes. I don't, you know, follow one, one, two, three, four, but I I skip here and there. Yeah. Uh, because there's just so many. But what I what I see from like the first episodes is that those are very scripted. Those are very from the heart, and you know, so yeah. much emotion. And as you go on in the podcast, me as a listener, as I go on and uh, listen to the more recent ones. Uh, they're no longer scripted. No, uh, you know, not can, at all. Can, can you share with us how it was at the beginning when you first had to press the record button and, you know, writing the script? Uh, can you take us into understanding how how difficult it was for you as a survivor to share your story? Well, when I first started, it was it's been about a year and a half that I've been doing the podcast, but um, I hadn't been sharing publicly for very long. And I started on TikTok and a lot of people kept asking me to do a podcast. So I scripted out the first episodes because I was like terrified and it wasn't about sharing. It was just like, I didn't really know how to do it. So I would spend days writing out the script and then record it on Saturday and post it every Monday. But as time has gone on, I feel more comfortable speaking. And now it's like, I just grab my recording equipment and just hit record and 
I don't even know what's going to come out of my mouth half the time. But then I sit there and I look at the timer on Audacity and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been recording for 45 minutes. I got to wrap things up. (laughs) But it is, I mean, you know how it is in the beginning, you got to work the kinks out. But with my content, it's in such sensitive nature and there's just that line and it's a very thin one where you go from being too graphic to not giving enough details. So I have to like skim that line. And in the beginning, it was really hard to figure out where it was. So I think it was easier reading it from the script, but now I've kind of, you know, figured it all out. So I like the way I do it now better. And I hate like some of the reviews are complaining about my beginning episodes. I'm like, oh, just keep listening. They get better, I promise. Yeah, they they they're all good. I listened to several, and I think that they're very informative. And I you know watch your TikToks, uh, also again very informative. Uh, you you mentioned how uh, it did take time to you know get comfortable, and yeah. because it's a very delicate topic. And it you is. also you mentioned how Hollywood in in some points have glamorized uh can mm-hmm. you can you walk us through what is like the hollywood view of trafficking the view that many people have and what is the reality of what trafficking sex trafficking really is uh well hollywood is you know the creepy guy kidnaps you and puts you in a warehouse with wall to wall cages with women and children and chains. And I mean, I'm sure that happens. It's just not the norm. The norm is parents trafficking their children or teachers, like neighbors, people that are closer to you. And you're, I mean, I lived a normal life as strange as it sounds. I went to school every single day. I took dance lessons, baton lessons, uh, graduated high school with a 4.5 GPA. Um, like I did really well in school and it's most victims are allowed to leave, especially ones that were in the situation that's similar to mine because I was essentially born to be the perfect victim. So I didn't even know it was wrong until I was in my twenties and I didn't even know it, the term was sex trafficking until I was I think 33. Yeah. It was about seven years after I escaped that I even knew what it was called. So there's a lot of misinformation out there and, you know, the movie, everyone thinks the movie taken and, you know, they get, and the thing that hurts me the most about people thinking it's like the movie taking is they get so scared that if they make a report, people are going to come after them. And, you know, like they're very dangerous people, which they are, but I don't think that it should stop people from reporting, but you know, it's, it doesn't just happen overseas. It doesn't just happen in like third world countries. It's happening in every city, every town in America. No one's just paying attention. Yeah. Cause the idea that, you know, that I had, especially after watching taken because I, I was in the Philippines for a while and I had been away from TV news but I saw the movie Taken and the the thoughts that I was processing was, oh, dang, you know, it's it's a, it's a dangerous world over there. 
mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't think of it being a dangerous world in regards to sex trafficking in my America. own country in America. And as yeah. I'm listening to your stories, you share that, like you said, it's not just in these warehouses, but also in neighborhoods. So where are mm-hmm. play? Where are places that uh, these things are happening? Everywhere literally everywhere i was um i lived in multiple houses throughout my childhood but it was just a regular like suburbia town um you could never tell looking from the outside in actually i did an entire series on tiktok showing the different homes that i lived in and you can't even tell from the outside that what was happening on the inside but it is it's it is everywhere there's no specific spot that I can say like, Hey, like, you know, it's more prevalent here because you just don't know, um, like truck stops, like the rest areas on highway are huge. There's trafficking going on there. Um, that's one place I'm trying to bring a lot of awareness to, you know, it's not the ones that have like, um, like a restaurant and fast food, food court things Mm -hmm. like the unmanned ones where, you know, there's the trucks on one side and it's just a bunch of bathrooms and vending machines. The traffickers actually buy tractor trailers and park with the rest of them. And then the victim just hops all around to the people that come up and want to purchase. So if you ever went to a rest area, I mean, think about it. You walk in, you go to the bathroom, wash your hands, maybe walk around, walk your dog if you have one. But you're there for like less than a half an hour. But if you actually sit there for two hours, you'll notice the same person walking back and forth to the bathroom. And that's that's just how out and open it is. Man, so you have been uh, an advocate for victims and, you know, getting their voice, getting their power back. Um, I'm trying to understand uh, because like going back to the movie taken people have this idea that it happens where you're kidnapped and it happens mostly to adult women or teenagers yeah how young at what age did you start getting uh victimized in this way if you're able to share uh, hearing stories from family members my best guess is about 2 but if I found out it was younger than that, I, I wouldn't be surprised. But it was before I was even old enough to remember anything. But the average age that kids are taken in is between the ages of 13 and 17. And the average life expectancy is just seven years after they're taken. But they're not taken in like the snatch and grab sense. Because mm-hmm. after I finally escaped my parents, about six months later, I was... Uh, kidnapped and trafficked by another man and he had just come into my place of work was he knew that I was struggling with addiction that I was homeless that my kids I had sent up to live with their father so he offered you know a house for me to stay at I could work at his friend's club and he would get me off of what I was addicted to like it was just like everything was perfect and I didn't even realize I was being held against my will till probably like a week, maybe two weeks after I was with him. We were driving back to where I grew up to go visit my family. And his cousin was running a a house that was with a bunch of trafficking victims. I think there were six. And 
he was talking to his cousin and said his cousin's like don't bring her to her family's house they won't let her leave and i heard his cousin say that and then he's like oh kelly's not going anywhere like right baby and just like tapped my leg and i was like no and then i just was sitting there and i'm like oh my god i've been kidnapped like i didn't i didn't even know i went willingly because he just groomed me so much and it took months that he worked on me like probably a good four months maybe maybe a little bit less i don't know time kind of smushes for me so he but, gained he gained your trust and yeah i thought he was like my best friend i thought you know he was someone i could really trust we he had taken me out to dinner taken me to bars to have like drinks you know we would hang out at his friend's house his house we went to some baseball games but I mean, it was months that he was working on grooming me. And this was all before social media. So now with social media, the traffickers have so much more access to people and it's easier to groom them. And with, you know, TikTok being videos and the reels and all everything being like so face wise, they're actually grooming kids to groom other kids so like hypothetically like a 13 year old girl will be groomed and trained to talk to another 13 year old girl on the internet who's struggling might be maybe suicidal being bullied or have abusive parents and the victim will talk the kid into coming and staying and say things like well you can come stay with me my parents said it's fine you know, we don't really have the same rules. It's a different school. I get homeschooled, you know, things like that. And the kid will run away to the friend's house, not even knowing that they're getting into a trafficking situation. So that's how they're taking kids through social media. So it's like, I try to tell parents a lot, like just because you see a child and hear a child voice, it doesn't mean that it's not someone trying to groom your children because it more likely than not is. That's terrifying because you it know is. all all that you're sharing isn't what we're used to seeing on you know mm -hmm. the big the big screen on the big yeah. screen it's like like going back to taken uh i think uh what's his name liam neeson's daughter is in europe and then a handsome guy comes up and and that's how that's how the story goes but and just offers to share a cab and i, I mean i'm sure that happens I mean, I'm sure it happens here in the U.S. It's more prevalent in other countries, statistically wise, but it's over 90 percent of trafficking victims know their traffickers. So the dangers at home and closer than people want to admit. And when I finally told, <laughs> oh, excuse me, my brother, mm -hmm. I loved the way that he put it. He said that it wasn't that he didn't believe me. It was that it was hard for him to believe that our parents could be those kinds of monsters. And I just I love the way that he worded it. And I think that's a problem a lot of people have is it's not that they don't believe it's close to home. It's that they don't want to. And mm -hmm. it's hard for them to because it's like I told a childhood friend and her first response wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry that happened. It was she was like, but I slept at your house. And I'm like, yes. And it didn't happen the night you slept over but it happened every other night. And a lot of people knew my parents. They were very loved, very admired, pillars of the community, president of the homeowners association, you know, nobody, nobody wants to believe that they were the monsters that they are. And I think society has that problem too. They want it to be only happening with the rich 
and the famous on an island in the Caribbean because they just don't go there. They don't put their yeah. kids in those situations and they feel safe, which is fine, but it's a false sense of reality and a false sense of security. So that's what I'm trying to do anyways. It's hard. That's <laughs> Not really, everyone wants to hear it. It's good that you're putting that out because yes, uh, those things do happen, you know, like in the islands and all that. It's a reality. However, oh, yeah. you're bringing awareness to look at the dangers that are nearby, near your neighborhoods, near your home. That's what you also should be worried about. And you were talking about uh, your parents, how they came off as being uh, good parents. They came off. It's 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 a facade. Yeah. It's it's a mask. Um, mm -hmm. And I was I was listening to one of your episodes recently, and I think you were sharing how uh, you're in the class and uh, the teacher or there was a talk where. Uh, oh, yeah. So uh, yeah. one of the kids in my school um, that was in my class, his father was a police officer and they came in and did the good touch, bad touch and, you know, told us about you know, bathing suit parts and all of that stuff. And they said, it's okay when your parents give permission. And what the police officer meant, I'm sure was doctors, you know, if mm -hmm. like get parents giving permission. And I mean, back then in the eighties and nineties, nobody knew what trafficking was. It was very, very rarely talked about, but I went down to the principal's office because like the, it was like the questions the kids were asking, like, it, like, I always thought it was normal. I, I thought other kids weren't talking about it because you just don't talk about it. Not that it wasn't happening to them. I thought that they were doing it. And it was just that thing no one talks about. Like, nobody really talks about what color underwear they bought at the store, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So when I went down and talked to the principal, because the questions they were asking was different than questions I was wondering um the principal called that same police officer and told the police officer everything that i had said and i talked with the officer for a little bit and he went and talked to my parents i don't i don't know what was said to my parents but they came back he actually the police officer never came back the principal just said my dad was coming to pick me up and it took years for me to like connect these dots like i just like, I know now that I just wasn't believed and they probably said so many different things to get, you know, the officer not to believe me. Like she's delusion has delusions. I mean, I was diagnosed with bipolar at the time, um, but the child me just thought it's I told a police officer if it was bad and it was wrong, they would have done something. So every time I told someone and nobody did anything, it just kind of solidified it for me as a child that this was completely normal and it wasn't wrong. And everyone does that. Cause like I would be taken to parties where, um, I don't know exactly what to call them, like viewing parties almost, but it was like a bunch of traffickers that would bring their kids. And I loved going cause I had friends, you know, I got to see other kids and got to get my hair done, my nails done. Like it was just such a fun time in the dressing room, but they would essentially just swap us kids around. And it was just kind of like a little way to network. Um, so I seen other kids have it happen to, and they seemed okay with it too. So 
there was nothing in my entire life until I was, like I said, in my 20s, that what was happening to me wasn't normal. I just thought it was a job-ish, you know, not really a job job, but, you know. And so, and you you said that how, you know, you did speak up, you did try to, you know, bring it up to a teacher or, you know, and when there was no action being done that kind of solidified that this was normal now exactly let's say there's a teacher today uh who gets approached by a victim what should that teacher ask or what should that teacher or uh you know that guardian look for or you know to to protect the child instead of thinking oh yeah uh, she's making it up or this is all just uh, storytelling or she's just uh, bipolar and uh, it, yeah. it's not really happening. Well, the biggest thing is um, it's the signs you would look for in a child are very similar to abuse, um, not to minimize it, but it is. It's essentially being abused, abused all day, every day. So um, talking to adults that I knew back then, like they said, I was always wearing long sleeves like and pants even in the hottest days in the summer like during heat waves uh when we would be at like my brother's soccer games or out in public I would always like want to hang out with someone that was not my parents I never wanted to go home uh when I would babysit I would always ask if I could like spend the night um but see it was just when people thought something was going on they would talk to my parents and my parents would just blow it off and then they would just be like okay you know she's just having her thing you know Mm -hmm. but the best thing and the thing i looking back that i needed the most was someone to tell me this is not normal and if a child is going to come to you no matter what age they are this is not something they're going to make up in their heads Like, even if every single detail is not true, there is truth behind it. Because there are sometimes I see a lot in victims where they try to get attention and tell people, like, this is what's happening to me, even just like in abusive situations. And they'll kind of like over exaggerate details. So people will like snap and pay attention. So it's like, even if it sounds like crazy and, all of this stuff, like there is truth behind it. No child is going to make this up in their heads there. I mean, they're, they're not going to watch a movie like, you know, like that there's truth behind it. So always believe the child and let them know that it's not normal. Cause that's the one thing I never had. Like my aunts and uncles never, like they knew they taught me how to cover up bruises, taught me like, how to be able to walk when I was in pain to make it not look like I was in pain. So I never had that. Like I never had one person sit me down and be like, this is not normal. I had everything else, just not that. And I I was listening to, to that episode uh, where, yeah. where your father does get approached by the, the was it the policeman, right? Yeah. And I was, it, it's very disturbing because your father, I think you're, you're sharing that he took you to the woods. Yeah. Afterward. Oh God, excuse me. Afterwards, mm-hmm. um, he took me to his office 
and um, held, I don't know if I can say it on here, but a pew pew, like, you know, it's mm -hmm. my head and told me never to talk about it again. And then dragged me out into the woods that was behind my house and had me dig a grave and then told me to stand in it and said, this is where I would be if I ever talked about it again. Um, and since I had already talked to the police about it and they did nothing, it just like looking back and putting myself back at that situation, it, it was just the same thing. Like the police would have done something if it was bad. So clearly the bad part was me talking about it, not it actually happening to me. And I think that's something uh, different about your story from what I'm used to seeing and listening is that this is actually being done by your parents. Yeah. Both my mother and my father. Both your mother and your father. And as you said earlier, from at least from the age of two. And so that's not what people are expecting. They they see a, from what they think is a happy family, a mm -hmm. father a father and mother who are parent of the year or whatever it is. And it's very, it, it the thing is, it's not suspicious. So no. like in the very beginning, you were saying how people think that all oh, they're just in factories or in these big warehouses mm -hmm. where it's obvious, you know, like, Oh, that could be, that could be a place, but this is done in one's in your own sanctuary, the family. And that is yes. just, it's an eye opener, I yeah. think, for so many, and and especially I've, for me. And I was actually trafficked out in public, like at a mall or a doctor's office, a dentist office. There were times where they would have me admitted into a, a child psychiatric unit and I was trafficked through that unit. Um, amusement parks, we would go on family vacations and a couple times throughout the week, wherever we were. Um, like if we would go down to Disney World for a dance competition, we went there every year and I was always trafficked while we were there. And there was one night, um, I remember this, I remember them telling me the story over and over again that I woke up and I was crying for my dad saying, help me, help me. And I had like a 105 degree temperature, but that was, that it didn't happen. It was, I like was trafficked. But it's like if I remembered things, they would gaslight me and like do the same kind of mind manipulation that, you know, that the Colts do and tell me like, like, just give me false memories. So when I would spend my weekends with Maxwell and Epstein, when I would remember like going to the different places we went to, if I brought that up to my parents, they would say, oh, yeah, your grandparents took you. But it wasn't they were like they're not my grandparents, but that's like my parents would say that it was my grampy and grammy that took me but it wasn't it was someone else so it's like it's really hard because like i literally would sit down with psychiatrists and therapists as an adult and i'm like i don't remember anything right like it's everything's just so jumbled in my head so it's mm -hmm. taken a lot a lot of therapy to kind of make sense of everything yeah there, there's so many there's so many pieces in the memory and you're explaining how yeah. you know your body is is telling you one thing that you, you went through this, that you saw yeah. these people and then your parents are telling you, no, it's, you just had a fever. So that's very, yeah. and that's, oh, man, it, it just pisses me off that, you know, uh -huh. that a I mother was, and father. Would, I was young too. That. Like I was like 10, 
I think at that time, 10, 11, 12 ish. But yeah. Can you walk us through? Cause you said that it would happen like in uh, public places. Um, how do they get away with it? You know, when it's done in public places to not look because, suspicious. Because it's just so quick. So um, I talk about the mall a lot. And so they would bring me into a store and then I would kind of, they would distract me with something and they would leave the store and leave me behind. And then I would go up to the person that worked there and say, you know, I'm lost. And they would put over the speaker, like, um, you know, with the parents of so-and-so, please come to whatever store. And then someone from the ring, there are so many different names for this per person, like this part of the ring, I call it the babysitter. Mm -hmm. um, they would grab me, take me to an undisclosed location, the sale would happen, and then the babysitter would take me to a different store, and they would leave me at that store, and then I would go up and that to the you know person that worked there, and then my parents would come in and pick me up, but this whole thing would take like two hours. So they would make like I would be left at the store for like 45 minutes, but it's like nobody really pays attention at the mall. They're looking at the stores. They're, you know, going in and out. So no one really like thought anything, I guess, when they heard that I was lost twice because, you know, they just didn't remember, you know, no one really pays attention to the name to hear if it happens over and over again. But it was the same thing in amusement parks like we would. Like if it was the zoo, for example, we'd be at like the, I say giraffe because giraffes are my favorite animals, probably because I'm so short and they're tall, but <laughs> I, we would be looking at the giraffes and uh, they would walk away while I was paying attention. And then, so then someone would come get me and take me to the buyer. And then they would take me back to what, to some random place, like, you know, the, the antelopes or lions and then that's where I would meet back up with my parents so it just it's just so quick you don't notice and it's always in a very crowded place where people are you know paying attention to their own lives which is totally fine I'm not trying to shame anyone but I mean the mall it happened a lot during Christmas shopping season so everybody was shopping you know but that's how they get away with it because it's just it's so quick it's just leaving the victim and then someone grabbing them that, you know, and I mean, you know, if you see a kid walking in the mall crying, you just assume that they wanted a toy yeah. or something and they were told no, or they didn't want to leave, you know, things like that. So it is, it's very easy to have it done in public. It's actually easier to get away with it in public than in private. Wow. Not like easier to mm -hmm. get like, you know, for people not to notice. Mm -hmm. And so from like the age of two up to uh, what age were you with your parents before you ran away? Uh, I went to a battered women's shelter when I was 26. Okay. So, and that was the last I've ever seen or talked. Well, not, well, basically the last time I seen or talked to them other than when I got my restraining orders. Okay. Which were the best things I ever did in my life. I love those things I've been framed. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, when you found out that what was happening was was actually abuse and trafficking, because you mentioned how, you know, at yeah. that age, it's, a, you know, no one doing action to protect you solidify that this was just another another day of normalcy. Uh, what was it that or what were the things that helped you 
to open your eyes and to understand that enough is enough and this is wrong. So I was going to domestic violence support groups for something unrelated to my parents. And at one of the first meetings that we went to, they handed out the wheel of power and control. And it basically, it's a wheel, like a circle, and it has little rungs on it with all different forms of abuse. And I can remember reading it. And they, when I got to the financial abuse report part of it, they were talking about how you never get to hold on to your money, that you had to ask for money, that you're given an allowance. It just, it started clicking. And then I just started reading it and I can remember crying and the facilitator was like, you know, are you okay? And I'm like, I think I'm being abused by my parents. And she was taken back because that's mm -hmm. not why I was there. And I started opening up about things, but I know I didn't know it was trafficking for many years later. I knew what was happening. Like when um my husband was in Afghanistan, uh, it was about two years after my escape. I just told him that my parents, you know, would they would rape me and they would allow their friends to rape me. And that was just what my mind thought it was. But as I started down the road of recovery, I was in a lot of domestic violence support groups. And I just I felt like a fish out of water. Like I just did not feel normal. And just I didn't feel like I fit. Like it was always the ex-husband or boyfriend. So then I tried a couple of sexual assault support groups and I still felt like a little out of place. It just it just I didn't feel like it quite fit. So I started looking up things online and I kind of related to a lot of cult survivors because of the mind control and the control aspect. And I talked to, I can't remember the name of the organization, but they said that they did not think it was a cult, that if it could have been a cult of one, you mm -hmm. know, that my father was the leader and it was just like within my own family, like not, you know, the typical cults you hear about. But I found a woman's blog and her daughter had answered an ad for a photo like modeling thing and ended up getting kidnapped and taken into trafficking. So the woman wrote her entire blog because she got herself kidnapped so she could get her daughter out. So when I reached out to the woman, she told me it was like a different site to go to. It wasn't her regular blog. Like she had a couple of them. And she said his name and it was my father that actually took her and her daughter. He owned some hotel somewhere uh, with a buddy of his and they would trap and take girls that way. So they would think they were going to go to this job and they would go multiple times and have photo shoots. And just one of those times they would just take them and they'd be trafficked. So that's kind of how I found out it was trafficking because she was like telling me like, and I can remember sitting on the couch and I said to my husband, I'm like, do you remember when I told you about like them letting their friends do stuff to me? I'm like, what if money was exchanged? And he's like, well, that would make more sense than it not. I'm like, I was sex trafficked. I didn't even know what it was. Like I had to look it up and that was, yeah, I was 33. I'm almost 40 now. So it was about seven years ago. And that that's, that's the thing is that many times victims don't even know that they're victimized because mm -hmm. it's it's become so normal. And when yeah. you bring it up, no actions are done. No protections are done. And I'm surprised. Well, I thought initially that the abuse 
uh, by your parents, by your father was only done, you know, towards you, the trafficking. But now I'm seeing that there's this whole network where mm-hmm. they're targeting other people, other children. And it's just. Yeah. Well, they started trafficking before me, um, kids from their high school. This is what I heard. Obviously, I didn't know about it um, because I wasn't alive yet, but they told and it was something that what I'm told from my family is that the Italian tradition is to protect the firstborn son. So that's why it was like like taken care of within the family and no one ever talked about it again. But obviously that's not true italians do not protect trafficking you know just because of the family name but to this day they still say that um they're they know what happened they know what was happening to me they just they looked the other way they didn't care because they didn't from what i was told they didn't want to upset my grandfather but after he passed they still keep the secret so and I was disowned recently by them and it was such a blessing in disguise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I couldn't figure out like why I was so like my aunt had passed away and I was just an afterthought. Like she had been dead for almost an entire day when I found out, wasn't even invited to the funeral, nothing. And I was so mad and I couldn't figure out like where that anger was coming from. And I talked to my therapist. I'm like, I don't want to feel like I'm a sociopath and that I'm mad just because I wasn't included and just kind of working through it, realized that I was mad at them because they disowned me because I told the truth. And the truth was that they could have stopped it and they didn't, which they're just as guilty as my parents. So... It, I was relieved. I'm like so happy. I don't have to talk to my family anymore. They're all nuts. <laughs> it's it, it's sad, you know. I, for me, it's it sad because you know, I I truly value family and my yeah. family. I feel I feel blessed because my family, after I left the cult, uh, very confused, but they were there to support me mm-hmm. on my healing journey. However, I've come to learn that not everyone has that not everyone has that support or uh family members or friends seeking to understand how they can help and hearing your story it's like i wish that weren't the case i wish everything in this world were nice and peaceful but that's not the reality and that's why Mm -hmm. i'm i'm very honored to have you on the show to you know, be courageous and to, to share your story. Cause you don't have, you don't have to, to share your story. No, no. Sometimes I don't want to, <laughs> but I do. I think like a lot of people think when a victim, they always use the word rescue. And I hate that because I wasn't rescued. Like they always ask me, like, when were you rescued? I wasn't, I escaped. I did it myself. And almost every single survivor that I know did it themselves. And I think people think that they're going to have this loving family, you know, waiting for them at the airport or rushing into the police station to just scoop them up in their arms. And that Mm -hmm. happens, but not in most of the cases, because the family is the one that's doing it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I know one survivor that, I mean, I don't really like her parents. She's a good friend of mine, Um, but 
they don't they don't see it as sex trafficking. They think she chose to do the things that she did. So there's like a resentment that she gets from her parents. Like they just look at her as, well, she was, you know, a addict, a drug addicted prostitute, but she wasn't. She was forced and they don't understand. And I think a lot of people don't understand how you can be forced. I mean, honestly, like, can you wrap your mind around how someone goes willingly to their own kidnapping? It's so hard to explain and it's so hard for people to understand, but it is, it's, it, I mean, being a survivor is one of the, I'm lonelier as a survivor than I was when I was a victim. And you make a, a very strong point about victim blaming because it's like, why is a victim going to speak up or, you know, seek help? when they're the ones to get blamed and like like you were saying when when do you hear of a a kidnapped victim going willingly that's not what happens Mm -hmm. and then they twist the story and then i think it's easier to blame victims because you don't want maybe people don't want to see the truth for what it is well there is a push right now to legalize prostitution a lot of people don't realize that Pornhub is behind it. Um, they are one of the biggest donors to the Sex Worker Outreach Project, who is the biggest push to legalize prostitution. But if you legalize prostitution, you're essentially legalizing sex trafficking. Um Labor trafficking is also part of human trafficking, and nail salons are huge with labor trafficking. So there's no reason for the police, as long as they have all their licenses and everything in place, there's no reason for them to investigate unless a victim comes forward. And most won't because they have they hold on to their passports, their IDs, all their money. They're, they don't have credit. You know, there's no escaping. So, I mean, like I used to go to nail salons. I can't go anymore. And that's probably what drove me to be a cosmetologist. So I could just do it myself. And, but there were times when I would ask the person and I actually, when I was younger, I don't remember how to say it anymore, but I learned how to ask, are you in danger in Vietnamese and in Mandarin and all the different languages just to see if they would like tell me that they were in danger. Cause I just, there was just something weird about it to me. Like they would take my money like there was be a guy that would be sitting in the back and he would tell me where to sit. And then I would give them the money and the tip and they would give it to the guy. And I'm just like, this doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So it just like, it threw me off. And I, when I say younger, I mean like twenties, you know, thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> it just like went whoosh, but yeah, like legalizing prostitution. It's, you know, when I, tried to press charges against the guy he said that I was prostituting and he knew I was prostituting so he offered to just help me and keep me safe so no charges were brought against him even though he admitted to it essentially without admitting to it but yeah it's hard for people to understand because they think okay well this person's doing it willingly but the one thing that gets me the most is the way the laws are like if I were to enter into a sexual relationship with someone, if I was intoxicated, it is legally rape. You cannot consent if you are intoxicated, but you can consent 
to the sale. So you can be a prostitute and you can sell yourself while you're intoxicated. And that's totally legal. All of it's legal, but it's not if like me and you met up at a bar somewhere just and I, and I was drunk, you would have legally raped me if I was drunk and you weren't and vice versa. But it's like the laws just they don't match and they just they haven't caught up yet. So there needs to really be a a big ass yeah. update on that. big time. Yeah. And that's that's where the biggest problem in ending trafficking is, is. You know, a lot of people think if they expose Epstein's client list that it's just going to end all sex trafficking. It's not not even close. Even if the list was released today, none of those people could be arrested without a corroborating victim to say, hey, I was there. They did this to me. But the problems like, you know, yeah, police don't always get involved and judges don't always get involved. But it's the legislation like if they're not breaking a law then there's nothing anybody can do. No matter how many times you yell at them, they can't do something unless someone actually breaks the law. So that's where the problem is, is in the legislation. Something I'm trying to fix. I've been writing yeah. letters forever. <laughs> and do you think that our country is a bit safer at, you know, at, at this at this time compared to in the 80s and in the 90s? No. I don't think it's any safer now than it was back then. Unfortunately, I mean, I wish I could say it yeah. was that things are better, but it's actually easier for the traffickers now because of technology. And, you know, Reddit is completely anonymous. I mean, literally like with filters and contouring, I could make an entire TikTok account talking shit about me and my regular tiktok account and i don't think anybody would even notice because they have like filters to change your voices to change your whole like structure of your face it's just and it's sad because the traffickers the predators even serial killers have all evolved with technology but the laws have not so it's an uphill battle. There's so much change that needs to be done and there's not enough people fighting for it. And that's why I started sharing was so maybe people would start to see the truth and actually fight where the fight needs to be. And it needs to be in the legislation and changing laws. And I'm happy that you're sharing that because it it's something that is uh, an aware and there needs to be awareness on on this issue as well. I'm, I'm glad that you're here sharing about that and you just mentioned how um you know these predators they're upgrading with technology mm -hmm. and they're they're leaving uh legislation the laws in the dust you know they're just you know go they're just they're getting more savvy and and they are so good at gray lining laws they're good they i mean they know it inside and out. And I tell people a lot on my podcast and on on TikTok, survivors know trafficking inside and out. We know how it works. We know where they do things, how they do things, but no one wants to listen to us. And they had, um, you know, the election season just happened. And I reached out to so many campaigns, probably close to a hundred campaigns to try to talk to them and, you know, ask what their plans were on how they were going to combat trafficking that's happening, labor too, I was fighting for, 
one got back to me and it was um carrie lake's campaign that was running for governor i don't know much about her i know a lot of people don't like her but she sat down with a bunch of survivors and a couple there were a couple of detectives that work undercover mm-hmm. with, um to bring down these operations and her campaign sat down with us and asked all these things that we wanted i was kind of disappointed she lost because they they were the only ones and I mean, I reached out to so many, even in my own local state, they don't, they just don't want to talk about it. It's like such a taboo subject and less, you know, it's the crazy conspiracy theories, like kids being sold on Walmart or uh, Wayfair, you know, different things like that. And it's like telling people, Hey, this isn't true. They, Oh, excuse me. They attack me like so bad. Like, I was ready when I started sharing to get the, oh, you're lying, you know, things like that. I wasn't ready for a lot of the stuff that I get, like the, like, I can never think of the word, like the lashback, hashback, what is it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone yeah, knows think. what I'm talking about. They never That's know right. the word, but, yeah, you know, it's like I shared a video and just talking about Andrew Tate being arrested and the more details that are coming out, I mean, there was victims that were branded. He was bragging about doing what he was doing. And I mean, obviously, I still believe in innocent until proven guilty. But like, I'm getting so much hate for just reporting that he was arrested. I even have people telling me that he wasn't. I'm like, lawyer yeah. confirmed it, you know. And that's the thing is so many people are focused on Epstein and this client list but they're not really focused on it for good reason. I think they have like their hearts in the right place, but it's like, it's turned so hyper-political that conservatives think this Epstein list is going to bring down the Democrats and the Democrats think that it's going to bring down the Republicans. And I'm just like, shut up. It's going to bring down both sides. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. the politicians, yeah, I was trafficked to some of them. I wouldn't know who it was. I was a child at the time, but They were just a small portion. I mean, most survivors never meet a politician or a celebrity in their entire life. And it's more prevalent in the lower class, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, income class than it is. I mean, it does happen in the rich, but, you know, it's, it's all income classes, all races, all genders. I had women clients. The women clients were worse than the men. I don't know. That's just my personal experience, but it's literally, it could be anyone and it could be anywhere you are. You could be in the presence of a trafficking victim with their trafficker. They may not be being trafficked. They might just be, I mean, I had one client that would take me to target to shop. Um, and they always took me after the sales. Why? I don't know. Um, and buy me clothes and stuff like that. But I walked by what hundreds of people at target none of them knew they just thought i was a daughter and a mother and no it wasn't you know that it's sad that it's it's happening so often but people don't want to pay attention to that part and they will pay attention to the marks on the car or the zip ties and all the things that have proven to be false over and over again the likelihood of you know, that being trafficking is slim to none. If it was, 
you would hear more survivors saying, I walked out of Walmart and I found a zip tie on my car and I was it, I was in trafficking, but they're not saying that. They would be coming out in droves and you don't hear anyone. Like I have never heard a single story confirming that somebody got out of trafficking, escaped trafficking, had been trafficked for months, years or whatever, and say it all started with a zip tie on their car. And police departments, the anti-trafficking organizations have all said this is not true. And I know the money under the windshields, that's a carjacking thing. It's not trafficking, you know, but. Even on TikTok, this one girl, oh God, this video is like ingrained in my brain. Mm -hmm. She had a mask on and it had like, it was black and sequiny. And she's like, oh my God, guys, I was just almost trafficked at Walmart. I, I'm so scared. I didn't even have time to take my mask off. And I'm just sitting watching this. And I'm like, but you, you're so scared you didn't take your mask off, but you stayed in the parking lot? Like- mm -hmm. You weren't almost trafficked. You were maybe almost taken, but I mean, there's creepy guys at Walmart and sometimes they're just creepy guys. There's women that are just creepy women. Yes, there are traffickers there, but you know, they could befriend you and say, Hey, I've got this job. And that's going to be how you're the more likely way that you're going to be taken. Like, so, so, so like, okay. So what I'm getting is there are creepy people. Oh that, God, yeah. that, who are I'm going a creepy to, person. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, there are creepy people, and you know, like at Walmart. I mean, that's rare. Where <laughs> that's a rare thing where you're gonna find creepy people at, at Walmart. Anyways, uh, there are creepy people. It's really not though. Like Walmart's <laughs> a really weird place. <laughs> it, it, it is, but what, what I'm trying to get to is that you know, there's creepy people everywhere. Exactly. But but when it comes to trafficking, the mm -hmm. the the style is to be non-suspicious to win you over. Is that? Yeah. Hidden in hidden? plain sight. Hidden in so, plain sight. Do you ever see, I don't know if you have it there. I live in a college town and they have like on the side of the road, like college students make a thousand to 2,500 a week, like in the grass at, at like intersections. You know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah. Yeah. Those are ads that sex traffickers use. It's usually like when they do, it looks like a regular job. They'll meet you, do an interview. It's usually someone that's a victim that has gone, moved over to a recruiter that'll go out and meet with you. And they'll have you do some tasks and everything and build your trust in them before they actually take you. But the ads usually have a targeted age, a targeted gender. So it'll be like, girls 14 to 17 babysitting or modeling. I mean, I was talking to a friend that I was at a club and someone came into the bathroom and said to me like, oh, wow, you are so beautiful. You know, I really, you know, I really want you to be a model. You would be great for the runway model. And I walked out and I said to my ex-husband, we were dating at the time. I'm like, this person wants me to be a model. I'm five, three. No, they don't. <laughs> like, <laughs> There's no way that because his sisters were in that industry. His sisters weren't trafficked, but they were models and, and music videos. But I knew they lay like tall people, you know. So I said to him, you know, I think you should come with me. And I went to this place and it was just like, I don't want to say like a warehouse, but it was like a business thing and there was this like makeshift runway that they had me walk down and they're like 
well, this is a school that a modeling school that we have. And you would spend the night and it was, it was traffickers. I was already being trafficked and then targeted by traffickers. That's how common it is. <laughs> they were trying to take a victim. They didn't know it was a victim. Um, but what would have happened had I actually gone to this modeling school, that's when I would have gotten taken was after the modeling school when I trusted them. And that's the common way that people are taken if it's not a family member that does it or, or a coach or an uncle, you know. <laughs> so it's it's so. very enlightening that you're you're bringing this up because you know people need to make understand you know exactly. what what is human trafficking what is uh a carjacking you know and you know yeah and if to... you're answering an ad for a job and that interview is at a coffee house bring someone with you and if they don't if they're not okay with that it's not really a job no one's going to interview you at a coffee house it's very sketch yeah. usually if you're interviewing for like an office or even a modeling shoot like always bring someone because if they don't let someone come with you it's because they want you alone and exactly. they don't want you alone for good reason so but i mean i worked i mean i worked in the restaurant business my you know entire adult life because I was allowed to work while I was being trafficked around Christmas time. So it didn't look weird that I had a lot of money to spend on Christmas gifts on my kids. But they, um, you know, I would go to the restaurant and have the interview there. But it's like, it's just, I if it's something like that and they want to meet you at a coffee house or somewhere like that, I, I want to go. But I know too much. <laughs> so... So to kind of like start wrapping things up, I uh, had a, just a few last questions. Um, you did mention how, you know, getting on, on TikTok, there are so many people who you were prepared for for the people to say, oh, you're lying, you're making this up. But there's just so many different people engaging with you because I, I follow you and mm -hmm. man. There's just so much engagement and yeah. I, I'm not sure if it was in one of your podcasts or in one of your TikToks, but you were mentioning how sometimes the people can be so demanding and, and wanting victims to speak up, but you brought something that I, that enlightened me uh, because you're saying that victims, you know, if, if they don't want to talk, that should be respected and exactly. they should have their space. Uh, but if a victim wants to speak up, you know, then, you know, they should have that right to speak up. Can you uh, walk us through briefly how it was uh, before you spoke up and how speaking up helped or, you know, evolved your life, changed your life? I mean, I shared my story the first time um, at an event with the anti-trafficking organization here. I actually have part of the program tattooed on my leg to remember it. And um, it was called just one because I said all I needed was just one person to call and tell me it wasn't normal and it would have all ended. But um, I can remember they wanted me to sit with one of the college kids that was like in journalism and classes and they were going to make poems. They did like all this stuff for victims. And I became really close with the owner um, of this organization. So I said to him, like, I really want to write it because it's my story. I've never said it publicly. It's just been kind of eating away inside of me. Like, I want to write it. 
And then as I was writing it, I said to my advocate, I'm like, do you think he'll let me say it? Because I, I, I just, I think I need it. Like, I know he's very against exploiting the exploited because it happens entirely too much. So after a lot of persuasion, he did let me tell my story. And it was like, I felt like I closed an entire book of being a victim and I opened up the book of being a survivor. And I never, I didn't share on TikTok for about another year. And it was when the whole Wayfair debacle went down and I, the first video I did, I was so scared because I knew my parents were never going to see me on that speech, but they're going to find me on TikTok, you know? So it was a lot scarier to do it that way because I could just reach anybody. And I mean, you know, my podcast is in over 40 countries. So I did it in a hypothetical way. And there were people that were like, oh, that's a stretch. That would never happen like that. Like, why are you making things up? I'm like, you literally believe kids are being sold on a furniture app. Like that makes no sense, but it happening like at a dentist office is a stretch for you. So it just, it became apparent that I, I couldn't just like give the awareness without telling my story. And I talked to my daughters. I talked to my brother. We're no longer talking, but at the time we were, and I got their permission because it didn't just affect me. It affects so many people, me telling my story and they were all okay with it. So I just started going with it. And you don't know that TikTok account, but my first TikTok account, my videos were dark. Like I was just using the light of a TV. Like I barely showed my face. I was so scared. And now I just can't stop. Like I try and I just can't shut up about it because I'm just so passionate about it. But it, it, it was huge in recovering for me. And I think the biggest thing was they weren't my secrets. They were theirs. And I felt a lot of shame and a lot of guilt that didn't belong to me. And sharing my story passes it to them where it belongs. So I think sharing was huge for my recovery, but I also had to be in the right headspace for it. I don't think a year after I got out uh, and escaped that I would have been ready to go out and start talking and doing TED talks and speaking engagements. I had to do a lot of healing to get to the point where I was okay. But I mean, other survivors, if they want to share their stories, I mean, you've got that strength inside of you already. You used it to survive as long as you did, but you share your story when you want, how you want. It's yours. It's a very intimate thing. And I think people don't understand that because my one friend, she put it best and said that I look like some like a zoo exhibit. And people ask me like if I had STDs, ask for like if I was supposed to pretend to enjoy it, like things you wouldn't ever ask someone. And it's like if someone's house gets burglarized or they get carjacked or any other crime they're not doubted. They're not asked all these crazy questions. They're not like people aren't demanding them to give details, but when it comes to trafficking, they do. And I need that stigma needs to be broken and they need to start respecting that. I have to relive this trauma every single day. And I don't tell all, I mean, a lot of people say like, wow, you know, you tell all, and I don't, I have to keep so much stuff to myself because 
I don't know how to say it out loud and I don't want to because it'll be real, mm-hmm. but I like, you got to trust us survivors. We share what we're ready to share when we're ready. And I don't let anyone force me around. Mm-hmm. I don't. I was controlled my whole life. I'll be damned if someone controls me now. I mean, my kids kind of do, and the dog definitely does, but she's really cute. Okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it is, it is. It's like when survivors want to talk, listen, and don't force them to say things they don't want to, especially like this whole Epstein list, it doesn't, it doesn't exist the way people think that it does. And if it were to be made public, nobody thinks about the victims and how it's going to affect their lives. Like if my parents' names, like if I said it right now and someone from my daughter's school heard, what do you think they would do to my daughter? They'd bully the shit out of my kids. So I keep a lot of things to protect myself and to protect my children. And I have a right to that. It's my story. I own it. It's mine, you know? So thank you for sharing all of that. And um, this is like, we're already towards the end of the interview uh, for a survivor or maybe someone who is uh, struggling with being trafficked and is trying to get out of that. Uh, can you share some words of hope and healing uh, mm-hmm. for those listeners? Well, to anyone that's still in, there is hope and there is life after And you may not be ready to get that help and to get out. And that's okay. But just know that it is not normal what's happening. Your gut telling you this isn't normal, being scared and all of those emotions, your body knows that it's not normal. But to other survivors, I live such an amazing life. I have an amazing husband, three amazing kids, though. My youngest has autism and is smarter than me. Um, so that's kind of weird, but <laughs> I do, I have an amazing life. I, I look at things so differently now and I realized it took more strength to survive than it did to escape all the strength I needed to escape. I already had it. I just needed to find it within myself, but there is life on the outside and you do recover and things get better. It takes time. I mean, I've been gone 13 and a half years, but it took a long time to get to where I am, but just keep fighting. You've been fighting your whole life. Just fight a little more. And thank you for that message, because that not only goes to uh, those who are going through sex trafficking, that go that message goes to me- mm-hmm. everyone, everyone who's going through abuse or yeah. through coercion. There is hope for a better life on the other side. Yeah. So thank you so much. And where can people uh, find your podcasts and your TikTok? So um, my TikTok, I have two accounts. I don't really use the Unbroken Podcast one. It's just at Unbroken Podcast, but it's at Beautiful Mistake 24. Um, It's a Sanskrit term that loosely translates to there are no mistakes in life that everything happens for a reason and molds you into the beautiful person that you are. A lot of people hate that I say beautiful mistake, but that's why. Um, but I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, but I think those ones are beautiful mistake nine to four. That's the date I escaped September 24th. So 
it's just different variations of that. But if you find me on any social media, I have a link tree in my bio and it links to all my other social media. I also have my email in there. If there's any victims or survivors that want to reach out that need resources or just somebody to talk to. So and I'll be adding that on the show notes. So yeah. if anyone wants just to don't look add for it. The, don't add my burner Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> that's, okay. that's one for me just to have fun and okay. have nobody know who i am like i am i'm not kelly on that account <laughs> okay i'll make sure that's the one i stalked you on <laughs> yeah. well thank you so much kelly it's been an honor to have you share your message of you know of healing through all of that darkness and to show that uh, it is possible. So thank you so much. And I hope that. Oh, thank, thanks people... for having me. Yeah. <laughs> and stop stealing my friends. Uh, <laughs> I, I will. And uh, when you posted Diane's episode, I texted her. I'm like, you haven't been on mine. She's like, you didn't ask. <laughs> I'm like, come on mine. She's like, no. I'm like, what? <laughs> I introduced you to Ryan, not for you to be friends with him over me. Like, so stop stealing my friends. <laughs> Okay. I, I don't uh, think people understand the podcast community. Like we yeah. bounce off of each other and send each other guests and things like that. I love the podcast community. It's, it's just, it's, such be a it's become a family for me. It is. It's yeah. like one big happy family, but. Well, not always happy. Not always. There's some, <laughs> there's some grumpy people out there. I, I'm not going to name names, but <laughs> <laughs> anyways, thank you so much, Kelly. And I'll Thanks be leaving all of your links in the show notes and uh, again, everyone, you've been listening to Kelly from the Unbroken Podcast. And I am Ryan Anthony Hernandez from The Truth That Heals. Have a great day.